everyone. Welcome to Cutthroat. In this episode of Cutthroat, we are diving deep into the childhoods of the serial killers that we talked about last time. We are ultimately trying to figure out if someone's childhood really has that much of an impact on the rest of their life. There's still a lot of mystery surrounding Belle Gunnis, or should I say, Brynhild Paul's dad or Storset, which was her birth name, when she was born in Selbu, Norway, November 11th, 1859. Um, she moved to the United States in 1883, and not much is known about her until her first criminal activity started to begin in 1809. Gunnis's family came to the United States, like many did, in search of the American dream. Gunnis and her family moved to the United States in search of the American dream, like many other people did in that time. It's said that she found said dream in Chicago when she discovered a great way to make money, which was insurance fraud. In terms of Gunnis's childhood, there isn't much information. However, there is something to be said about a young girl who has to change her whole life in a new country with a new language and soon falls into white-collar crimes. Maybe she liked the rush she got from doing something she knows she shouldn't, and that desire for it has just greatly increased over time to the point where she became a murderer. In episode 2, I'm going to be looking deeper into Dahmer's childhood. Jeffrey Dahmer lived anything but a normal childhood. Jeffrey's little brother, David, was born when he was five years old. While growing up, Jeffrey and David often competed for their parents' attention, constantly battling each other for everything. His parents were no help as they often neglected both of them and moved around quite often before settling in Bath, Ohio. His parents went through a messy divorce and fought almost every single day. Also, his mother suffered from depression and even attempted suicide. Jeffrey was a very disturbed and lonely child, and even at one point in his life, he had gotten a tadpole and brought it to his teacher as a gift. His teacher soon later ended up giving it away to another kid. Dahmer soon later went to that student's house, found the tadpole, where he proceeded to plot out his revenge. He poured some gasoline on it and set the tadpole on fire. Dahmer then later said, if you want to call that torturing animals, I tortured animals, lots of them. This was only the beginning of his killings as he was about 13 years old and planned to kill a local runner in his own neighborhood. He fantasized about doing this for a long time, and on the day he tried to do it, it took up about two-thirds of his day just waiting in a bush. It's said that he had been overcome by a lust for a male jogger in his hometown of Bath. So one day, he hid with a baseball bat near the jogger's route, hoping to make his first kill. But Dahmer told a reporter that the man didn't go jogging that day, so he had just moved on. These were only the first of his many obsessions and killings as he grew. According to Ted Bundy, he had an uneventful childhood. His friends and family often backed up this claim, but a closer look reveals he was a socially awkward child who sometimes crossed the line of propriety, morality, and legality. Though the suspect behavior exhibited by a young Bundy has been seen in others who didn't go on to rape and murder numerous victims, his childhood offers some clues as to how he became a serial killer. Bundy was born at a home for unwed mothers in Burlington, Vermont, on November 24, 1946. He remained there for two months after his birth. His mother, Eleanor Louise Cowell, was known as Lucy, considered placing her baby up for adoption, but her father, Sam Cowell, apparently wanted the baby to join the family in Philadelphia. 
There, Bundy, then known as Theodore Cowell, began life thinking Louise was his sister, not his mother. However, in Stranger Beside Me, Anne Rule notes that Bundy had told her he'd seen through the lie. Maybe I just figured out that there couldn't be 20 years difference in age between a brother and a sister, and Louise always took care of me. I just grew up knowing that she was really my mother. At first glance, the Cowells were a normal family, but Bundy's grandmother suffered from depression and agoraphobia, and his grandfather has been described as the own, owner of a raging temper. His violent acts touched everyone, from cats and dogs to employees and family members. Some Bundy experts have theorized he was the result of Louise being raped by her father, though she said she'd been seduced and abandoned by a war veteran. Bundy may have experienced physical and psychological abuse at the hands of his grandfather, despite his later insistence that the two had a good relationship. Bundy's behavior could be disturbing. On at least one occasion, his aunt woke up to her to find her toddler nephew placing knives near her sleeping form. She later told Vanity Fair, I remember thinking at the time that I was the only one who thought it was strange. Nobody did anything. In the same Vanity Fair article, Dr. Dorothy Lewis, an experienced psychiatrist, gives her opinion that such actions could occur only in very seriously traumatized children who have either themselves been the victims or extra of extraordinary abuse or who have witnessed extreme violence among family members. He didn't get along with his stepfather and would act out. When Bundy was three years old, he and Louise left Philadelphia for Tacoma, Washington. So, as not to draw attention to her son's illegitimacy, Louise gave Bundy the last name of Nelson before the, mo the move. But moving was still upsetting to the young boy. He missed Philadelphia and initially didn't care for the Seattle area. And he became even more upset when his mother met and got involved with Johnny Bundy, an army hospital cook. Louise and Johnny married in 1951. Jealous of his mother's new relationship, Bundy had a deliberate public tantrum at Sears, wetting his pants as part of the display. This didn't keep Louise's new husband from adopting her son and giving him the name that would become notorious years later. Relations between Bundy and his stepfather were always tense. Bundy was materialistic, wanting expensive clothes and belongings that his working-class stepfather could not provide. Bundy fetishized about being adopted by the popular Western stars Roy Rogers and Dale Evans because they would give him the things he wanted. As Bundy grew older, he disdained his stepfather's intellect. Friends witnessed him provoke his stepfather, who would sometimes strike out at Bundy in frustration. Bundy resented his mother because he was illegitimate. There were fewer surface tensions between Bundy and his mother, who always made sure he was physically cared too. But she went on to have four more children, so her attention was divided. After Bundy's capture, he expressed a feeling of being unloved, though he voiced appreciation that Louise had paid all the bills. And Bundy's illegitimacy was another sore spot in their relationship. There are different versions of how Bundy learned the truth about his birth. According to a psychologist who interviewed Bundy as a teenager, he found his birth certificate and saw the space for father had been marked unknown. In another account shared by Bundy's girlfriend in the book Phantom Prince, a preteen Bundy was teased by a cousin about being illegitimate. When Bundy obje objected, the cousin used his birth certificate to prove the truth. Bundy's girlfriend shared that Bundy subsequently resented Louise because he felt he'd been humiliated. 
A friend remembered trying to reassure Bundy that his illegitimacy didn't matter, but a bitter Bundy couldn't be consoled, telling him, well, it's not you that's a bastard. Young Bundy had a violent tendencies and begun to break the law, yet Bundy's childhood behavior sometimes went beyond social awkwardness. A fellow boy scout remembered Bundy once coming from behind to hit him over the head with a stick. On conversations with the killer, Holt said Bundy liked to scare people. She recounted his fondness for digging holes in the ground, putting stakes inside, then covering them with vegetation. At least one girl fell in and hurt her leg in one of these tiger traps. Bundy enjoyed pulpy detective fiction stories with gore-filled depictions of rape and murder. He may have started looking at pornography long before he was a teenager, as it's possible he accessed his grandfather's collection while living in Philadelphia. Bundy would sometimes masturbate inside closets at his junior high school, getting doused with water when his classmates caught him. A young Bundy also began breaking the law. He was a good skier who shoplifted ski equipment he desired but couldn't afford, among other items. In addition, he forged lift tickets in order to hit the slopes for free. As a teen, he attempted car theft. He received a warning as punishment. Most disturbingly, Bundy became a peeping Tom who spied on strangers. Bundy may have killed his first victim when he was 14. Bundy's first known victim was killed in 1974, but he is suspected of earlier killings. One possible Bundy victim was 8-year-old Anne-Marie Burr, who disappeared from her Tacoma home in the middle of the night of August 31, 1961. At the time, a 14-year-old Bundy lived a few miles from the Burr household. It's possible he'd been spying on people's homes at night and spotted an opportunity his violent instincts couldn't pass up. Among the few clues left at the Burr home were an open window, a footprint, and an, an unlocked front door. Anne-Marie's parents and sister were, were in the house when she vanished. Likewise, some of Bundy's confirmed victims were taken while others were nearby. Anne-Marie's mother felt it was likely her daughter had known her abductor. Bundy may have met Anne-Marie on his paper route, or while visiting an uncle who lived in the neighborhood. Bundy denied he was responsible for Anne-Marie's disappearance, including when Anne-Marie's mother wrote to him asking for closure before his execution, which took place on January 24, 1989. Yet Bundy, who had hinted there were more victims than he'd been officially linked to, could have been reluctant to, the, to admit to a crime that took place while he was still living with his family. In 2011, existing evidence did not contain enough am amplifiable DNA to compare to be compared to Bundy's DNA profile, it remains possible that his murderous acts date from childhood. Ted Bundy brutally mur murdered at least 30 women and girls in the 1970s, but because he was a college graduate who was studying law, he initially escaped intense official scrutiny as he didn't fit into people's preconceived ideas of a serial killer. Bundy's education itself may have aided him in his murder spree, as his psychology degree could have helped him understand ways to isolate victims. And because he had studied law and could represent himself in court, he had an opportunity to escape custody. Yet Bundy's education didn't keep him from paying the highest price for his crimes. As a child, John Wayne Gacy was overweight, unathletic, and unpopular. John had a heart condition and was told to avoid all sports in school. Because of this condition, he experienced various blackouts and seizures, spending almost a year in the hospital when he was just in the fourth grade. Gacy's father was an alcoholic and very abusive to his mother. He was very close to his mother and two sisters, but struggled to receive love and affection from his father. 
He was constantly belittled by his father, being called dumb and stupid compared to his sisters, but he never actually admitted to hating his father. Gacy explained several stories with authorities of being beaten by a belt and other household items for almost every mistake he made. When Gacy was young, him and another boy were caught sexually assaulting a young girl. Along with this, after the beating he received from his father because of it, Gacy was molested by a family friend and never told anyone about it in the same year. Do you think that we are all potential serial killers, or do you believe that it takes a specific type of person or a specific scenario in someone's life to lead them down that path? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I do really like this question. I think this is a, a great question to ponder, especially from a um, kind of a, a psychological perspective. And I, I think it really gets back to one of the primary we, reasons why I mentioned this stuff fascinates us so much from that, that kind of human perspective. Because um, in my mind, theoretically, I think we're all capable of doing things we would never think possible. And just a simple review of social psychology research shows so many glaring examples of how powerful the, the situation that we're in can be in determining what we do in any given moment. Um, in fact, this is one reason why I always like to remind myself this, um, there's a famous phrase there, but for the grace of God, go I. Just kind of thinking like, you know, never look down on, on someone else or why they do, because you never know the situations or the context that may have led them to, to certain acts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that being said, before I go too far down that path of, yes, we could all be serial killers, most serial killers, in addition to being shaped maybe by some trauma and life experiences, have a very unique brain uh, or brain differences that set them apart from the average person. For, for example, there's typically little to no activation in their amygdala and ventral medial prefrontal cortex. And these are areas of the brain that specifically control emotion and emotional decision making. So this could explain why they're able to commit atrocious, atrocious acts and know that they're wrong without necessarily feeling that they are wrong, if, if that makes sense. Um, and, and this is, again, even where terms like cold-blooded uh, come from. One interesting connection that I'll just add to this is that many extreme thrill seekers, like rock climbers, race car drivers, um, other extreme sports like that, also tend to have lower amygdala activation. And the advantage of this is it allows their anxiety levels to remain low in these dangerous situations. But that also means that they need to push to those extremes on a more regular basis just to feel any kind of rush of adrenaline at all. Uh, Now, the the caveat that I want to leave with here is I'm not suggesting that... um, you know, just because you're a thrill seeker means that you're more susceptible to, to becoming a serial killer than, than anyone else. Um, and I, I think as much as I, my limited knowledge of this, as much as we know, there's still a lot we don't know about what actually makes a serial killer kill. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Agapi, Mark, Chase, Cassidy, and Henry. See you next time on Cutthroat.